listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. To hear the full show each day, tune in to AM550 and FM102.9 WDUN or log in to accesswdun.com and click the Listen Live button from 9 to 11, Monday through Friday. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and um, joining me right now is Kelly Leffler uh, from Greater Georgia. She's the former United States Senator, as well as a very successful business person and, you know, just a great friend. I mean, she is one of those people that you can talk to about anything, and um, she will um, always give you her best advice. Kelly, I appreciate you very much. Welcome to the program. Well, good morning, Martha. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. And I saw you across the way at the convention Saturday. I'm sorry we didn't get to catch up. I know. It was just one of those days, right? Um, But I love what Greater Georgia is doing. And I love the fact that you are going out beyond activists to get people registered to vote, to communicate our message. Because Look, I love being a part of groups, and I've I've been a joiner my whole life, okay? That's just the kind of person I am. I like to work on things from the inside. But a lot of people are busy with their lives. They, they don't understand our messages. And what I love about what you've done with Greater Georgia is you've gone beyond the traditional activists. You've used the activists to help you get your message out. But you've gone beyond the traditional activists to get people registered to vote and out to vote in elections. Well, that's that's our calling. Our calling is to engage conservatives, grow the movement, and mobilize them to vote because our state is stronger. It turns more conservative when more people vote. We know that. We saw that in 2022, uh, particularly compared when you look at 2020. Now, we obviously had great turnout in 2020. Um, but if you look at the mobilization that happened on the ground here in Georgia for the last presidential and everyone knows this. The presidential year is a very different uh, election year th- cycle than a midterm. Uh, Georgia Republicans grew their presidential vote by 19 percent from 2016 to 2020. Democrats grew their vote by 35 percent. So mobilization on the ground locally is incredibly important, particularly in presidential years, because these become nationalized. And we Georgians, we have to own our elections. So I've been working every day since I left the Senate in 2021 uh, to grow the movement. And that's what we were doing at the convention. We signed up hundreds of new volunteers. We talked to people about Greater Georgia's message. Um, and we are there. We are providing the infrastructure locally to support the grassroots who do all this work on the ground. Now, you're very data driven. So what are you doing different as we prepare for 2024 than you did in 2022? Well, we do have the benefit now of being in our third year. So we have amassed a tremendous amount of data. And what we're seeing is that our state is changing. It's demographically, economically, and politically changing. And we're watching how those trends uh, will impact impact the voting uh, turnout and mobilization. The fastest growing groups of our electorate are the Hispanic and Asian communities. We've done a tremendous amount of uh, minority community outreach, whether it's registering voters at supermercados, uh, making sure that um, black leaders hear from us, that they are part of this conservative movement, that we are reaching out to the Asian community, and also women. Women are 55% of the uh, electorate, at least in terms of turnout in 2022, Women are deciding elections, but too often I see, and I saw this over the more than decade I've been involved in the state party, is women are too often underrepresented. And so really encouraging women to have a voice because they are, we are so impacted by everything, by every policy. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that voice become very strong. So we're providing different ways of engaging, not, you know, some non-traditional ways. Um, roundtables, outreach at grocery stores, gun stores, gas stations, meeting voters where they are. You know, our mutual friend John Fredericks um, talked about the convention being a MAGA takeover. And, you know, he's very dramatic in his language, and that's okay. I love John. I've known him for years and years. (laughs) Um, But 
we do have a lot of candidates running in this primary so far. And is it really important as you approach this with Greater Georgia that you're you don't take sides in primaries? You make sure that, that we get the best turnout possible in a primary so that the selection we make coming out of the primary reflects what people really want. How do you navigate that? Well, important question because we are providing infrastructure for the conservative movement. So as a C4, we're really building toward the general election to make sure that conservatives have what they need by the time that gets here to win. And so we're taking two paths. As you noticed uh, at the convention, we had everyone from President Trump at the convention to Vivek Ramaswamy to Asa Hutchinson. And the, the they all received very warm welcomes. Obviously, President Trump was uh, the star of, of that convention. But look, our movement is very energized and engaged. And so to harness those 3,000 people, those grassroots activists that attended this weekend, we have to make sure we've done the work on the ground and providing those tools, meaning that we have election integrity engagement. It is so important that people trust our elections so that the issues become the main conversation that we have. We win when we are talking about the issues that matter to voters. We are all tired of rampant inflation. We're tired of the Biden administration paying people to stay home and not work. We're tired of everything being a chaos or in crisis that doesn't need to be, whether it's at the border or in Afghanistan, um, or look at what's going on with the DOJ weaponizing the FBI and the the justice system against President Trump. Voters are tired of this. But we have to make sure that they trust our elections so they turn out and vote on the issues. So we've done a tremendous amount of work on election integrity, um, helped close a Zuckerbuck's loophole this year, um, have been educating people on Senate Bill 202, and that letting them know that our elections that got dramatically changed in 2020 now have guardrails that are much needed. Well, you know, um, we had that horrible collapse uh, on I-95 yesterday um, that was in the news, and it, it made me think about 2017 when we had that happen on I-85. And, and you know, what happened was is that the Department of Transportation and the administration got all the red tape out of the way, and they got that thing done in seven weeks. And, uh, you know, it's funny when you look at some, this is a good, this is a good concrete example of how you make something work versus I'm anticipating that it's going to be a much longer process with the with the group that we've got in place right now, that they're not going to look at 2017 and say, wow, this worked really great. We should do that because then that will give conservative ideas a some credit. Well, exactly right. I mean, in business, and that's the world you and I come from, in, in business, you look at what works, you look at what didn't, and you learn from it. But when there's an ideology that stands in the way of serving people on the ground and helping them in their everyday lives, helping them succeed, um, protect their families, um, that's a problem. And, and I talked about that quite a bit on Saturday is, if we stand for nothing else, we must stand up for our children and for their future. And we see this progressive agenda taking over everything, not just the economy. I mean, I know as conservatives, we love to talk about the economy, and but we have to think bigger about everything that the society is being built around and the radical ideas that are permeating everything from education to the military um, and beyond. So um, we've just got to really look at what's working and what's not and take a stand against it and there's such kelly there's such an opportunity on that arena you know i've recently in the last few months met a guy by the name of justin gibbony he's a he's a pastor he has a thing called the and campaign but justin comes out of democratic politics he was a dnc delegate all of that but he's also a person of faith and he 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 is putting together this kind of movement about traditional family values within the black community. And and he says, on the one hand, and I think you've probably heard this from people, he doesn't like the language that conservatives use, but their their ideas align better with conservatives. But he doesn't like the way Democrats discount 
religious people within the party. And there's an opportunity there, too. We, we see it within the Hispanic community. We see it within the black community. We see it in other places where people of faith within black, brown, and white communities feel like they're left out of the discussion from both parties. Absolutely. I'm so glad to hear that because those are the conversations we need to have. We need to be the the Big Ten movement, and I think we are. If you look at the views that were represented at the convention over the weekend, you saw a range of views, and, and we need to hear that feedback and adjust and, and welcome people in that have differences because on the intolerant left, you can't have a different point of view. You have to fall in line. Progressivism has to be your religion, not Christianity or Judaism or whatever faith you follow. Um, so that's really encouraging, and we do see that so much. But, you know, we can't ignore when we see things starting to be made, you know, changes like putting boys on girls' sports team, uh, normalizing due date abortions, um, all these things that um, they're trying to put through. And we just have to say, look, let's have a conversation about what that really means in our families and our communities and our values. And this country was founded on religious freedom. Um, and so keeping our faith front and center, I think, is the path forward. No, I agree. Because, it, you know, uh, President Bush famously said that even people who have never been free know what freedom is, right? Even people that don't have faith have a hole in their heart that's not filled by something, a hole in their soul that's not filled by something. And if we don't fill it with something constructive, I believe it's a belief in Jesus Christ, but other, you know, there are great people that are Hindu, that are Muslim, that are are, are whatever religion out there. But if you don't fill it, they what the left has done is they have filled that hole in people's heart with these progressive ideas that aren't going to help them in the long run. Right, and putting progressivism over patriotism. And I think minimally we can all agree, like, look around the world, look at, you know, what's happening in countries, whether it's Hungary or Ukraine, the, the national pride that they have. And you think about our country, that patriotism, that national pride is being ripped away in favor of saying that we're a bad, we're a um, systemically racist country. And, and it's it's not true. Uh, this is the greatest country in the world. We need to s- support and stand behind the American flag um, and and make sure that we can say the pledge in school, but yet the left wants to ban Bibles and the pledge, but allow pornography in our schools. Amen. So to that. that's something when we all need to say something's badly wrong here. We need to just start um, taking control locally which we do have municipal elections this year in Georgia. We cannot forget that there is a chance this year. We don't have to wait for 24 to start making a difference. That's why we have to work on the ground, pay attention to what elections are coming up, and then talk to your friends and have and family and churches and schools and have those conversations and stand up for what's right. Kelly Leffler, tell folks if they want to know more about Greater Georgia, how they can do that. You can go to greatergeorgia.com and sign up get our newsletter you can see our past newsletters on our website you can go to our social media on twitter uh, and facebook uh, greater georgia and we'd love to have you get involved and uh, we've got a new election integrity initiative coming up to make sure that our voter rolls are accurate uh, ahead of the elections in 24 we'll be announcing that soon and um, that way everyone has confidence that when they go to the polls to vote their their ballot will be there and uh, it won't be invalidated by, by someone who legally doesn't have the right to vote. So we're going to continue to push election integrity while we grow the tent and, and register new voters. So please get involved. Kelly Leffler, thank you so much. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. Likewise. Thank you, Martha. Have a great day. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Raising a diverse family in the best country in human history. I resent my family and myself ever being looked at through an immutable trait. I resent ever being told that I'm a victim, my son's a victim, because of our immutable traits. 
I want the dignity and the honor to be judged by my character and by my merit and by my achievement. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and that is Ben West, who is a county commissioner. Uh, I want to say this right, in Clackamas County in Oregon, and he's with me today. Ever since I saw this video, I have been so drawn to it because we are more alike than we are different. And I'm a little older than Ben just by looking at him, but I was raised to look at people and judge people on how they treated you, treat people as you would like to be treated. And I don't like the separations that we've tried to insert in the last few years. And so I asked him to come on the program. Ben West, thank you so much for being with us today. Martha, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I I love that we have similar value systems, even though we're probably 3,000 miles apart right now. Um, And yes, you did say it correctly. It is Clackamas County. Um, It is one of the three counties that makes up the greater Portland area in Oregon. And, you know, Portland's got a lot of issues. I mean, and you're a Republican county commissioner, correct? I am. It's a nonpartisan seat, but I'm a registered Republican. Yes. And in Georgia, what's interesting is we don't have to register by party. We have open primaries. So it's a little different here, but we certainly have Republicans and Democrats. We just had a convention and all that sort of thing. And but or in Oregon, I would expect you're kind of a minority being a Republican. Is that right? I like to refer to myself as a special unicorn. <laughs> we're rare, not often seen, but we're really special when you find us. You know, and and you were very honest in that um, exchange about being a gay man, about raising a diverse family. You're a Republican. And what I like to say to people is how I define myself is I'm a Christian wife, mother, grandmother, American, Georgian And then I'm a Republican. Okay? So there's a whole bunch of other things about me that I worry about first. Because if you fix all of those things, if you deal with the family part, if you deal with your community part, if you deal with those things, then the party stuff is not as hard. I absolutely agree with you. It really comes down to um, being colorblind and looking at people for who they are, what makes them special, what makes them an individual and treating them as such, um, and not necessarily only looking them, looking at them by the things that I think are really irrelevant. What makes me special as an individual is not the fact that I'm a gay man. It's kind of a footnote of who I am, but I'm so many other things, right? Like so many other people, my story is much bigger than that. I'm, I, you know, I'm a brother. I'm an, I'm a, I'm a cardiology nurse. I'm an elected official. I get to be a parent to Jay Kwan. Like I'm so much more than just something that I can't control. That just is what it is because that's how I was born. And you're in the Navy, correct? I, yes, I am a new naval officer. Congratulations. Yes, I'll be, I'll be, um, thank you. Thank you. Doing some, I, my, my practice, I'm a nurse. Um, currently work at a large academic hospital um, here on the West Coast. Um, very part-time still to keep my license active and um, to continue to diversify my career and to do some more public service. I uh, just took the oath in May to be a naval officer and a nurse serving and serve as a nurse in, uh, in the Navy. So, you know, congratulations. I have a nephew that's getting ready to retire after 21 years in the Navy, and he's had an amazing life. He joined up at 17, so he's going to be very young when he gets out. He's not even, I think he's working two more years over 20, so he'll be about 40 when he gets out, and he'll be having a whole nother life. And he's so funny because he said, Aunt Marnie, I just want someplace with an office and air conditioning. (laughs) And so, so, so it's uh, because he's had a pretty um, serious job and he's on some kind of project he can't even tell me about right now uh, because it's top secret, super secret. But I'm very proud of him because of, and you know, he was a guy, he came from a broken home. He came from a situation where his father died young. He came from a lot of things, He, but he had an, an extended big family around him that held him up and lifted him up and helped him be successful and you know on paper when he was 17 years old people would have said you know mike isn't going to make it you know but he made some good decisions and his family supported him in those good decisions and he's doing great now 
that that is you know, that's kind of a human experience. I think that is very similar to my son's story. Um, my spouse and I we had we adopted um, uh, our son Jay from Oregon's foster care system, and um, he had a failed adoption, and he was in and out of multiple homes and a lot of early childhood trauma. But um, we uh, got him into our home. We started to care for him. Started to help him go through the healing process start to get his life together, get stabilized, have community. And now my son's 17 years old. He's finishing his junior year of high school, I think this week. Um, and, but, but he's uh, vying to play college football now. So from Oregon's broken foster care system to getting an opportunity because he got community, he got family, he got to put his roots deep. He got the ability to get work through his childhood trauma. You know, he's, he's working for a division one football scholarship and um, the things that really are relevant about who we are as a family is the color of our, of our skin. I'm a white man. My son is African-American. And the diversity, equity, inclusion, or the CRT culture and that political ideology that drives it would um, say that I am inherently, because of something in the ether, an oppressor of my son um, because of the color of his skin, he is to be oppressed or a victim. I'm a victimizer. And I can't think of anything more toxic as a father than to look at the lens of our relationship as father and son based on our skin color. Nothing could be more irrelevant and more toxic um, as we build and create a family. Um, and so, you know, you look at Abram X. Kennedy. He is the thought leader behind anti-racism. Um, he's wrote a number of books about this and has made millions of dollars um, peddling this bad idea. And what he has said in a spouse is that because I'm a white man and my son is black, that I'm a colonizer um, because I adopted a black child. And that kind of rhetoric, that kind of po- political ideology is really poisoning the waters of our communities, of our schools, of our corporations, um, of our governments. And it is not... Um, measuring up to the first principles and the ideals that made us so great. It really is flying contrary to the 14th Amendment, the Civil Rights Movement, all this work that we did to live up to our ideals in the Declaration, um, and we've done a lot of work to do that, are being undermined by this very subversive diversity equity, inclusion, ideology. So what is the status in Clackamas County? Because I think you were able to get it tabled when when that video yes. that we played. So what's the status of it now? It's in process. And and, and this, is, this is how I'm looking at it now. So as local leaders, elected leaders, we have to be brave enough to set the culture in which we were elected to lead. And um, we have all witnessed the unlimited expansion of bureaucracies, right? We've all been through the DMV. We've all seen government agencies be inefficient, incompetent, and super difficult to navigate. But something unique's happened. Bureaucracies in America have been become politically um, infect- have been infected with political ideology, and we've seen them really captured by critical race theory and these DEI movements. And so we're beginning that process to change that, to um, level it, and to replace it with the core principles that I think are foundational to who we are as Americans, and that's focusing on things like merit, equality, fairness, being colorblind. And so we're beginning that process. What does it look like to go layer by layer within a large bureaucracy within a large county and begin to replace it with the ideals that made us great as Americans? And And so we have to look... Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Please finish. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so, so when we look at this, we have, we have the process. We can't just, in theory, talk about these really great principles. We have to put them into practice. And so by tabling this conversation, by continuing to have the conversation to get everything in order to begin to analyze and to be strategic about replacing diversity, equity, inclusion with a system of values that's more based in merit, fairness, equality, and colorblindness, that's the work we're going to do between now and when we take up the conversation again, is being very strategic and shifting the culture and the worldview that informs the work that we're doing as a county, which is super hard to do because I live basically in Portland, right? It is everywhere. This is not, what I am talking about is not the predominant ideology. And if you don't toe the line, if you don't um, uh, believe 
the, um, the principles of the diversity, equity, inclusion, or CRT, um, then it is fraught, not just politically, um, but in how you're perceived within your community. Um, so it's going to take a little bit of nuancing effort, but we have a board that's really looking at this closely and wanting to begin to do the difficult work to unwind this mess. Well, and what's shocking to me is, you know, and I don't mind telling my age, I'm going to be 64 in August. And when I was in high school, I was on the student council during the time our school was desegregated. And I was part of a group of students that were were welcoming the new students and saying to people that were uncomfortable about it, you know, hey, this is the way we're all the same. We're all working on things. We got to judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. This was in the early 1970s, mid-1970s. And I went throughout my work life building that and working on that and 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 opening up those doors and being the only woman in a lot of workplaces during I entered the workforce in 1980. And it just it's it, I guess this is what Reagan meant, where freedom has to be fought for in every generation, <laughs> you know, because it feels yeah. like we're fighting the battles that we fought 50 years ago. And, and we are. Um and they're just taking kind of a new, more insidious form. You know, it's so funny because you look at diversity, equity, inclusion. It sounds so nice. <laughs> diversity is good and equity sounds good. Inclusion sounds good. But what do those euphemisms mean? And conservatives have to get better at articulating their message in a way that can actually become practice. The left is so good at making their ideology practice and, and seeding it in all different layers and aspects of our society and all the different facets, right? And so when you, um, I also think this is why like local elections matter so much. Like sometimes we get so caught up in the president and the Senate. Those are all important, right? Our, the entire nation was watching Georgia Senate races the last two cycles, right? Like those, those races are important. However, though, the government that impacts your life the most is the government closest to you. So understanding how your county commissioners, your city councilors, your mayors, your school board races, your school board members, they can very much impact the policies and the ideologies that are promoted within those those entities, within those bureaucracies and agencies. Um, and I think looking at like what diversity, equity, inclusion actually means is super important. We're talking to Ben Rest, who's a county commissioner, but he's also the father of a son that's a pretty good football player. So I can't let you go without talking <laughs> a little football with you. So I got to know, were you a big football fan before you had this son that played football, or are you learning as you go along the way? So so this was a Ducks house, the Oregon Ducks. That was that was our, our football team growing up here in, um, in our household in Oregon. Uh, I know the Bulldogs took it to us just, you know, yeah, that's um, okay. not that long ago. We can all remember. Uh, but, um, yeah, my son is a football player. Uh, he goes to a high school that just – that are the reigning state champions. They're one of the larger – they're a large high school here in Oregon, and they took state last year, and they're looking to repeat. Uh, he plays defensive end right now, and he also is a fullback. Um, so he's a big running back, and he plays on the defensive line. How tall is he? Uh, he's about 6'1". Wow. He's about 6'1 right. and 230 and no body fat. So in the sure. southeast, as you know, we are like, football is like a religion, <laughs> right? And so yep. I've been a Georgia Bulldog all my life. My sister married a guy whose father was a professor at Auburn, and they offered me a free ride to Auburn. But I wasn't wearing that orange and blue, okay? So <laughs> so I went to the University of Georgia. I graduated in 1979, and then I went back for my master's degree in 2016 uh, after I got my kids out of the house and got them out of school and all that kind of stuff. So it took me about five years to do it, but I got my master's degree in American politics and and did my thesis on women's electoral success in the in the Republican Party. So uh, it was great. It was so much fun being in class with a bunch of twenty five year olds. It'll really keep you young when you do that. <laughs> I I, I it absolutely. Um, Jay is. I, I'm a I'm a Liberty grad, so I got my grad. I did all my grad work through Liberty University, and so when we went back east to Virginia to Lynchburg for me to walk. That was the first time he really got to walk onto like a big college campus and kind of get the, the vibe of what that is like and how exciting that is. So we have a couple schools in the southeastern part of the United States. So who knows 
we might be doing a little bit of relocating and um Jay would love to play football in the south and um yeah well you got my number you got my number i will help you any way i can ben so you know i i love your story and we're going to have you on again and i appreciate you being with us today Thank you, Martha, for the for the opportunity. It was great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. I have a friend um, that's in the, her, her son is in the process of adopting a child that is black and they are white. And, you know, it's a similar kind of situation. And I got this email from Sharon that says, my sister's best friend's son and wife adopted a girl that is mixed race. Uh, it's sad because both families didn't want her. The child told out great, because turned out great because she was taught good Christian values to love one no matter what color of skin the girl graduated from high school early and is in college now which is great because i'm a firm believer in education it's true and education does you know the the education is the great um great unifier it is the thing that's going to allow to uplift you what separates us is economics and education it's not all the other things because people are all the same you bleed red, okay? It doesn't matter how much melanin you have in your skin or how much you don't, okay? There's this ridiculous comment out here because there are Muslim people that are very against this um, homosexual agenda, the LGBTQ, whatever the alphabet soup is. And now the group that decides what hate speech is is saying that Muslims are aligned with white supremacists. And they can't even define what a white supremacist is. It just it just makes me so angry. Now, we got this text message in. It said, good morning, Martha. This is Joshua from Flowery Branch. Sad to say, but things are going to get worse in the United States. We have forgotten God in his word. The problem is spiritual and moral. Giving more money and more programs is not going to resolve anything. Christ is the answer. You know, Joshua, I agree with you 100% about this. I think there are, you know, Jesus, I believe Jesus said it. I am the worst person when it comes to quoting the Bible. But the statement, I believe it was from Jesus, give Caesar what is Caesar, give God what is God. And I'm paraphrasing there. But basically he said, there is a role for government to do certain things. But there also is a role for God. And and there are certain things that government isn't going to change about life. Okay? Government can provide support for things like housing and ability to get food and that kind of thing. But if it, within your household, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or in between, you have no faith in your life. Now, look, I'm a Christian, so I believe that faith should be belief in Jesus Christ. And if I get to heaven... One of the questions I'm going to ask God is, because I've always kind of thought this, that some of the big religions, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim for that matter or others, is that a way that God is speaking to people in a way that they can understand? And is it a way that he's bringing people to him through this? So I have lots of questions for God if I ever get there. But I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is our Savior, and that Jesus wants us to love one another. He wants us to love one another as he has loved us. And he loved us in the greatest way possible by giving his life for us for the remission of our sins. And I believe that in the core of my being. You know, when I was in college, I was dating a really nice Jewish boy. And I was crazy about him. And he was really wonderful. I mean, you talk about a guy that knew how to treat his girlfriend. He did. But as we got more serious, we weren't able to go any farther because I would have had to convert to Judaism if I married him back in the day. And I think a lot of people do it without doing that these days. But I would have, I felt like that would have been the way it would have to be. And I just couldn't get over the Jesus thing. I do believe Jesus is the son of God. But... I know great Jewish people. We talked to Dove Wilker last week to talk about the rise in anti-Semitism. I know strong Muslim people. I've talked to the imam here in Gainesville about how 
converting to Islam changed his life and made him a better person. And and how, you know, it wasn't that Christ couldn't have done that. I believe Christ could have done that. But I'm not going to tell him that his experience was wrong. Because I believe in a Christianity. You can, you can throw things at me. You can tell me that I'm wrong. I believe in a Christianity where Jesus is the, our Savior, but also that you live your life in a way that people come to you and say, Martha, what is it about you that gives you peace? What is it about you? It gives you the opportunity, me the opportunity, and I've had this happen in my life, gives me the opportunity to say to them what it is that gives me peace. And it's the peace of Jesus Christ. And I've, I've told this before on the radio, but I'll tell it again. I was a person raised in the church. I did everything. I was the president of the Luther League. I led the youth service. I was all of those things. Check the box. You know, I did all the things that my parents wanted me to do re- regarding my religion. I was raised a Lutheran, so I did all those kind of things, okay? And when I was 29, I was in the worst place in my life. I had gotten a divorce. I felt like that I had let God and everybody down because of that. I was in a house that I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. It was getting ready to go into foreclosure. I was able to save it and and not go into foreclosure. But I was as alone as I have ever felt in my life. And, you know, I didn't know where to turn. And I read this book called The Road Less Travel. And the first line of the book is... Life is difficult. Pain is a part of life. And at that moment, I felt a presence that I can only say was Jesus Christ. I believe it was Jesus Christ. And I felt a presence that said to me, Martha, it's going to be okay. And if you follow me, it's going to be okay. And I had poo-pooed people that said they had born-again experiences. But that was my born-again experience. And it's so funny, when I was teaching seventh-grade Sunday school, a number of years ago, which a, a bunch of people you would know were in my seventh grade Sunday school class that are now doing big things around Gainesville, but I won't call them out unless they want me to, unless they want me to. But I told this story in my Sunday school class, and one of the kids who you would know said, "Wow, you were really old when that happened." <laughs> and you know, I wish I was twenty nine again. You know, I don't wish I was eighteen again. You know, like the song says, I wish I was 18 again. I wish I was 29 again because the last 33 years, 34 years, 35 years now have been fantastic. And my life has been better than you could imagine. Not to say I never had bad things happen. I lost my mother and my sister and my brother. Um, My husband's had cancer. I mean, there's lots of bad things that have happened. But all in all, I've had a great life. And I attribute it to the fact that I gave up to Jesus Christ. I kept trying to make, I stopped trying to make things happen. And I leaned a little more on Christ. So I know that's not for everybody. And I know that that might make some of you uncomfortable me telling that story. But all I'm, I tell it to say that it's my hope, you know, and I feel like I've, you know, I kind of say a little prayer of Thanksgiving that sometimes people will say to me, gee, what is it that gives you peace? And, you know, I think it's also being open to people like Ben West. We had a guy that called and said, I just couldn't get past the fact that he said he was gay. But the reason why he said he was gay in that statement to the county commission was because he was saying to this county commission that wanted to institute DEI that I'm one of these groups you're trying to give special status to, but I don't think we should do that because this is the greatest country in the world and I shouldn't be judged by my immutable traits. I should be judged by the content of my character and the kind of parent that I am and the other things. So that's, he didn't say it to say, I'm a gay man. He was saying it to say, these things you're supposed to be helping me with. It's kind of like during the riots in uh, the BLM riots that were in Minnesota after the George Floyd murder. And there were these two white girls that were tearing up a Starbucks. And a black woman comes up and goes, what are you doing? And the girls say, we're helping you. 
And she goes, I don't need your help because you're going to go home to the suburbs and I'm going to get blamed for this. We got to understand what our role is. And I know I'm a little preachy today, but our role in this country, because I believe things are going to get worse before they get better. Okay. But I still believe we could put the right person at top on, on top there. And we'll, we're going to talk more about no labels. We're going to look at more candidates. But I agree with Ben. We're going to focus more on local issues, too. We're going to have the county commissioners in on Monday to give an extensive look on the budget that's about to be passed that's going to affect you guys. We reported today on the school budget that was just put in there. If you go to accesswdun.com, you're getting the local news that you need about the stuff that impacts your life more day to day. So while I'm always going to talk about national politics, I love it. I'm always going to talk about um, what's happening with a presidential race. You've got to weave it in together with the stuff that you actually have control over on a day-to-day basis, where you're going to see your elected official in the grocery store. You're going to see him at church. You're going to see him at the civic club meeting. You're going to see him walking down the street at the parade or whatever so that you can actually say, hey, elected official, Are you doing your job? What about this? What about that? That's where you really have the impact. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining me on the phone is Anna Bauer. Anna Bauer is uh, from the area and interned for me a long time ago and um, now is uh, Law Fair's Fulton County correspondent and ended up at the Miami Courthouse. Anna, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to be back on the Martha Zoller Show. (laughs) That's right. So it says here in your description that you're the Fulton County correspondent for Lawfare. So how'd you end up in Miami covering that case? Right. So, well, I usually cover Fulton County for Lawfare because, you know, I'm from Georgia um, and and just kind of happened to, uh, you know, fall into uh, doing that. But I, I've also covered the litigation that went on with Trump's request for a special master. Some some folks might recall that last year, as DOJ started investigating his handling of classified documents, he brought a civil suit asking, you know, for basically an expert to go through some of these materials. So that was going on in the fall, and I covered both of those. Uh, hearings that were going on in West Palm Beach and as well at the 11th Circuit in Atlanta. So I kind of had a history with the case and, and they needed someone to go down there and, and cover it. So I, I volunteered and said, I'll go. And, and so I was very lucky to be able to be a part of this really historic happening in Miami. Now you finished law school, right? And passed the bar? Yeah, so I finished law school. Um, I've not taken the bar yet. I, I uh, intend to do that either this summer or, or potentially uh, in February, uh, depending on, you know, what's happening with some of the cases that I've been covering. And what do you want to do long term? Right. So I, I am planning, I do have a legal fellowship with Lawfare. So Lawfare is a, you know, publication devoted to national security and legal analysis that they also do some transparency law and, and access to courts litigation work. So I, I will be doing a, a fellowship with Lawfare that involves kind of, you know, requesting documents and trying to make court proceedings more transparent to the public by, you know, asking the the court to unseal certain documents that have been hidden from view um, and that kind of thing. So that's that's what I'm doing for the next year. I'll also, of course, continue, you know, reporting on some of the things that I've been reporting on for Lawfare. So t- um, but, yeah. So tell us about this this circus that happened out in front of the Miami courthouse and just give <laughs> us kind of a little, kind of a condensed version of what, you know, you went through to get inside that courtroom. Right. You know, I think this is the first time that I've really come to understand why they say the circus has come to town when they're talking about media uh, coming in to cover a really big event because it truly felt like, you know, the caravans were circling around the the courthouse and there's so many different characters. Um, You know, it's not only just media, but, but eventually some Trump supporters 
started to come through and, and they were all kind of outfitted in, in their Trump gear. Um, and, and so it really just felt like there was this very colorful cast of characters around the courthouse in the lead up to the first arraignment of a former United States president on federal criminal charges. Um, in terms of what I had to do to get into the courtroom, I, I really did fight tooth and nail to get in there. I, I kind of in, inadvertently started the line to get into the proceeding about 27 hours ahead of time. Uh, I will admit that it was an accident. I, I showed up to the courthouse around noon on Monday before the hearing, which was set for Tuesday at 3 p.m., and I was walking around the courthouse just to scope things out. It started raining, and I decided to take shelter underneath this overhang next to the courthouse doors. And NBC, who you know has an army of interns and, and production assistants, had you know assigned an intern. His name is David Hunting. So shout out to David if he's listening. He he saw me sitting next to the courthouse doors. And he he had been assigned to, you know, go and get in line if it looked like anyone was was getting in line. So he ran over and sat next to me. And then, you know, various reporters started walking by going, is this the line? <laughs> and and so eventually I realized, oh, no, I, I've accidentally started this line to get into the courthouse 27 hours ahead of time. And it was too late and I couldn't back out then. So it was a very long night. Um, and then, you know, they let us into the courthouse the next day around 8.30 a.m. So you didn't get anything no elect- to eat, anything to drink, <laughs> didn't go to the bathroom, I, any of that? So I, did at one point, so I did at one point have to hire a task rabbit. I don't know if listeners have ever used that app, but it's an app that you can kind of hire people for odd jobs. And because the court changed its mind about allowing electronics, I had my phone and computer with me thinking that I'd be able to bring them in because I, you know, filled out a form to bring it in. And, and the court eventually said the night before, no electronics. So I knew that I had to go stash my phone and computer. So I had to, you know, as a measure of last resort, hire a task rabbit to stand in line for me while I went and put my computer and phone away and, and took a shower and got something to eat. So oh, okay. it was like a brief, yeah. <laughs> but I've it heard was, of those. It was wild. Okay, so you get, yeah, into, so, the, you get into the courtroom, mm-hmm. and yes. what was the proceeding like? So the proceeding was really, it was a very solemn proceeding. Um, it's, uh, we entered the courtroom, and it was extremely quiet. You know, usually you can hear buzzing and, and chatting before a court proceeding. I've attended so many that I kind of just know what the, the usual feel in the room is like, and it's, it's usually pretty casual. People are chatting. But here, you know, you walked in, you were let in with a line of, of other media or members of the public who were going in, and, you know, there were protective service members all over the room from the U.S. Marshal Service and from the Secret Service, and you sit down, it's extremely quiet, and the room is, is quite spare, but it is also in some ways kind of imposing or majestic, this courtroom. Um, the ceilings are extremely high, and there's like slabs of marble on the wall, so it, it felt very kind of appropriately ceremonious. Uh, I describe it as feeling like you are walking into a cathedral in the midst of a funeral because the mood was just very somber. Uh, and and we see on the right-hand side of the room that Trump was already seated at the defense table. He is there with his attorneys, Chris Keiss and Todd Blanche, and at the same table sits his co-defendant, Walty Nauda, who, in addition to being his co-defendant, is also his longtime employee, and Trump appears to kind of be slumped over or hunched over between his attorneys as he wait, awaits uh, at the defense table. He, interestingly, is seated directly under a light from the ceiling above, which seems to kind of give the impression that he's literally sitting underneath a spotlight. So that was a kind of poetic touch uh, that was very interesting um, and I hear from other reporters who were watching from the media overflow feed that Trump's face was kind of set in uh, a scowl. Uh, 
and that he did not look very pleased to be there, as as most defendants uh, understandably are not. Uh, and then, you know, another thing that we observe as we're waiting is that special counsel Jack Smith, the man who was appointed to investigate Trump with respect to his handling of classified documents and, and then also the separate investigation into January 6th, is seated in the room on the front row behind the table of, of Department of Justice attorneys who are there to to uh, make representations during the arraignment. So it's very interesting to see these two men in the room for the first time together. And, you know, it, it did seem to be the case that Jack Smith was kind of pointedly staring at Trump during the hearing. So that was interesting to observe because, you know, it, it seemed to be a, a very pointed action. So was it on like he was part. trying to catch his eye? Um, or I don't think it was that he was trying to catch his eye. I, I kind of wonder, you know, I'm not sure what the purpose of, of it was, but it could be a few things. I, I, I perhaps wonder if he's just observing the table and how all the interactions uh, are going between the right. attorneys and Trump and then also Trump and his co-defendant. You know, there's it seems to be the case that while T. Nauda would be a uh, prime cooperator in the case, if the Department of Justice could uh, convince him to do so. So I, I wonder if perhaps what Jack Smith was doing in, in looking over at that table throughout the proceeding is is just observing the interactions between everyone to get a sense of whether or not it seems like Nelta uh, could be potentially a cooperator. Yeah, so, and I mean, because yeah. he was an employee of Donald Trump, basically mm-hmm. his valet, I think, if, I, if I've read everything correctly. Right, and he still is. He's, so he's right, doing, he still travels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's doing, yeah. he does what he's told, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and I think that he'll be an easy person to get to cooperate, maybe. Well, um, I mean, they're going to have to give him something really good because, um, it, unless he's just facing tons of jail time. Yeah. Uh, all he did really was move boxes, so he's kind of lower level on the scale. Yep. So do you, just your final thoughts on what you saw, what what do people need to know about what you saw? I think that I think, I think something that is really interesting and important about what I saw is that there has, seems to be, you know, a disconnect between what Trump, what his actions are in court, um, being, you know, very somber and kind of resigned. Uh, and then, and the representations that his, his attorneys are making in court, and then the kind of confidence that he's showing outside of court in terms of making a, uh, public relations campaign around the case. Uh, you know, there's a big disconnect there. Of course, there will be because, uh, I, I assume that Trump's attorneys have advised him of what you should or should not say in court. Um, and this proceeding was very brief. So there wasn't much for Trump to say or to do or for his attorneys to say or to do. But I, I think that uh, something that we will see as the case moves forward is um, looking to see, you know, whether what Trump is saying in terms of his def- defenses in the public differs from what his attorneys are putting forward in court or, or the way that he is. Oh, yeah, uh, he's definitely he's court. definitely talking too much about it in public. I mean, I'm no attorney wants to see their client um, giving those kinds of things, calling Jack Smith a thug. And uh, it's one of those things. But Anna Bauer, thank you so much. It's great to have you on. Um, I followed you, you closely and I appreciate what you're doing. And um, we'll have you on again soon because I'm sure you'll still be covering this stuff. Thanks so much. I I really appreciated being here. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.